Hello, everybody. Dr. Lonnie Stewart here from the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. Are you a physical therapy student about to start studying for the National Physical Therapy Examination? Or maybe you're a professor, a program director, or a clinical instructor who teaches DPT students preparing for the NPTE? Either way, we would recommend checking out our sponsor, NPTE Final Frontier, and the community they've built around preparing for and succeeding on the NPTE. That exam and the preparation that goes along with it can be long, tedious, difficult, and stress-inducing, but it doesn't have to be. NPTE Final Frontier has the tactics and resources to help address all of the usual barriers. They even have scholarships to help with NPTE study courses, FSBPT registration fees, and even research opportunities. And if that's not enough, they're even donating to the very first annual HET Podcast Scholarship to be awarded at the end of every year. Go to NPTEFF.com for all of the details and use code HET for 10% off all purchases. Links to both the NPTE Final Frontier and their scholarship options are available in the show notes. And now, let's get ready to learn. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. F. Scott Field, uh, and I've got with me today a very special guest, uh, newly published author, Dr. Gus Almonroder. Gus, how the heck are you, man? I'm doing good. I appreciate being on. Um, I know we've talked before about I've uh, had a chance to to watch a lot of your podcasts and stuff like that, and I've always been able to pull great things, good good ideas from it, and stuff like that. So it's it's certainly an honor to be on here. Well, we we appreciate you for coming on. So tell us a little bit about your academic journey and how it's led you to where you are at today. Yeah, yeah, it's been. I mean, like a lot of academic journeys, I would probably say a winding road. <laughs> yep. um, you know, I I. Um, have always wanted to be a physical therapist that, you know, probably since I was in high school and stuff like that, I kind of probably have a similar story to a lot of people. I wanted to be a professional athlete. And at some point in my life, I realized I wasn't that talented. (laughs) So I was like, there's a problem there, you know? So I was kind of like, you know, what's a career that I could stay involved with sports and and things like that. So I looked at a lot of different things and, and PT and sports medicines particularly just felt like a good fit, right? I, I worked a lot with, with physical therapists in high school and things like that. And so when I went to college, I kind of had my blinders on, like, that's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be a sports physical therapist. And I had my career planned out and uh, I got into PT school. Um, I went to UW lacrosse and had a great experience. And one of the things that was kind of unique about what they were doing at lacrosse at the time was I, they had opportunities for students to get involved with research. And I didn't really think of it as like, I'm going to get involved with research because I want to do research someday, right? It was kind of one of those things that it's like, well, this will be good for me. I'll get some extra experience. The stuff they were working on, was it related to sports medicine? I, I worked with John Wilson at the time and a few other people, and, and they were doing um, some running research. And I was like, wow, this is so cool. This is exactly what I want to do. And so I got involved and they were gracious enough to let me help out with some, even some writing and stuff. You know, I started being the guy, I started out being the guy that just, you know, put markers on and, and helped with data collection and processing and kind of worked my way up where they'd let me write and, and present and things like that. And I got to the end of PT school and I thought, you know, this is awesome. I love research. I love the process. I love the idea of academia. And I thought, you know, maybe I should look at what the next steps would be to get involved in academia. And I kind of talked to some people um, and kind of got encouraged that like, well, maybe think about going and getting a PhD. And so there was an opportunity at the University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee, and it was kind of, you know, just kind of worked out because my wife's from Milwaukee area. Uh, We were, you know, 
pretty tied to staying in Wisconsin where we're, where we live now and things like that. And there was a fully funded PhD position and things like that. And I thought, well, it's a great opportunity. And so I went there and they were working a lot of, on a lot of the research I was interested in stuff like that. And when I was there, I kind of had the epiphany that I was like, well, if I'm going to get in academia, I'm probably going to need to teach at some point. I'm like, oh, no, I'm comfortable with the research. I, I love that. I know I love that. But I was like, what about teaching? And um, I was really lucky when I was there, too, because I had a lot of great mentors and things that asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, you know, I, I could see myself staying in academia. And they said, well, then you should get some teaching experience. Right. And so I started teaching at the undergraduate level, kind of teaching a functional anatomy class to students in the kinesiology program that were largely going to PT school or OT school or uh, PA school or something like that. And then I also taught that same course to some uh, MSOT students. And then I also taught at a few different programs as an adjunct while I was working on my PhD and stuff like that. And, you know, through that, I kind of realized that I, I really love teaching, right? I just loved every part of it. You know, I love being around students. I loved the creativity that could come with it about thinking about the complex things. And it was always funny. Like, I'd be like, I remember trying to learn whatever it was for the first time and how much, how hard that was for me. Yeah. And I'm going to be the one to figure out how to explain it in that perfect way. You know what I mean? Create that perfect visual. And it, and it was, it just, I was kind of hooked from the beginning. And so that's really where my career has been. I'm still um, involved with research uh, quite a bit and stuff like that and, and lucky, but at the same point, I've, able to split a lot of my time between teaching and, and research and stuff like that. And, and I would say the thing that most days that gets me up and gets me excited is probably, probably teaching. Yeah. And that's where I'm at. So you brought up a lot of good points there, right? And a lot of people don't realize this, but like when you go into academia, right? Uh, you, you, your explanation was kind of a somewhat normal path that way, right? Yeah. Like for me, it was a, a little bit more roundabout way, but like, a lot of people think like, well, I, I've been a therapist for 10, 15 years. I just know the stuff so I can go teach it, right? And like, I'll just get a job in academia and I can teach, right? Well, that's not exactly the case most of the time. Um, no. Me personally, I, I, you know, I thought that. I was told, no, 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 going from clinical to academia is pretty drastic career change. And I decided to ignore all of that advice <laughs> and found out that they were indeed right. So right. I don't know what I was thinking there. But, you know, academia basically has three main pillars, right? It's got your teaching, it's got your research, and then it's got like service to the university or students, right? Those are basically the three uh, pillars of academia, right? And I've found over the years that like you can't be great at all three of those. You just can't. Like... Mm -hmm. You yep. can think you are, you can try as hard as you might, but you cannot be great at all three of those. You can be like really good at one and like so-so at the other two. You can be fair and pretty decent at two, but being great at all three is really tough. So you've got to kind of pick and choose which two of the three or one of the three that you're really going to lean into and, and really craft your skill at and be good at. Right. Because I feel like all three of them are a skill set. They are an art form. Right. And so, you know, for me, I, I have an EDD. Right. And luckily it, I went through that EDD program because I was a rote memorizer. I didn't know uh -huh. how to learn until I went through an EDD program, which is insane. Right. But I was an English major before I turned PT. So it was a very roundabout way to get there. Right. Yeah. Over the years now, I've kind of realized, oh, it is an art form. Oh, you do have to learn how to teach. And I've loved that part of it, right? So the teaching part uh, and educating part has really grown on me. 
uh, the research I really struggled with after my dissertation, but that's a whole nother story for a whole nother day. So I'm getting more and more interested in research, but it seems like the research I'm getting interested in is more educational research, which is, you know, a different form of research, not quite maybe as expensive as some of the PhD stuff out there, but it does take man hours and, and you yes. know, manpower to run the research in education. So my, my view and vision on it is that you, we've got to have a good foundational knowledge and how to teach, and then we can teach physical therapy or occupational therapy or speech therapy or anatomy, whatever it may be. But the root of what we do, especially at DPT programs, is we teach, right? Yes, um, yes. And so I've seen a lot of like PhDs who are not great teachers, but they're great at research. Yep. And I've seen a lot of DPTs that are not great at research, but they're great at teaching, right? So like there, there is ways to kind of have, you know, strengths in, in some of the pillars without some of the credentials yet. And so I feel like it can be something that can be worked on for sure, just like anything else. But, you know, you do have to kind of pick and choose your path, right? So obviously teaching seems to be one that's really been resonating with you lately. Tell us a little bit about how you would describe your teaching style or your flow. It's very personal. I know, uh, you know, everybody's got a different style, but what, how would you explain yours? Yeah, you know, I, I, and this has probably evolved like anything, you know, sure. I think it's evolved along the way. And at, at one point, I think early on when I first started teaching, I kind of saw myself as like, you know, a dispenser of information, right? Mm -hmm. Like I'm going to present the information to you. And I've always been, I think, um, good in some ways about presenting and, and creating nice slides and beautiful visuals and stuff. And I thought that's what teaching was. Right. And I think over time, I've kind of learned that it's like, that's, that's a good way to present and create visuals. That's not teaching, right? right? And I've kind of gone more towards, you know, I'm kind of your guide in this journey, right? And so like simple things, like instead of just presenting an information, like a lot of times, sometimes I'll teach like motor control or something like that. And instead of just saying, here's this motor control theory, right? And here's the elements of it. And here's how it could be applied or something like that. I'll try to you know, follow along on that journey with a student and say, all right, here's an activity where we're going to test out a theory of motor control, right? I'm not going to tell you how we expect this to come out, or it's just a little classroom experiment, right? And it's one of those things that I'll kind of explain the theory to them, but then I'll say, okay, based on this theory, how would you expect this to turn out, right? And then we'll go through the experiment together. And it's kind of a fun process. It's, it's a little more risky, right? Because there's yeah. sometimes where it's like, your results don't fit your theory. And, but I think that's even a great learning opportunity, but it's more, you know, of me just kind of being the facilitator as they kind of move forward and start to think about things and start to question things and be like, well, that didn't turn out. What are, what are some reasons why it couldn't turn out? And my goal is kind of to get them students I work with to a point where they kind of one, they still have that, that enjoyment and kind of a, uh, thirst for knowledge. Like they see how fun it can be to study these different things, right? Because there's so much we don't know, you know what I mean? And that yeah. we can just, we can just poke holes in different ideas and we can kind of continue to evolve. And it's like, you know, so that's part of it. And the other, the other part of it is I, I think besides just being a more engaging, I think things tend to stick a little bit, right? When it's like, I've had a friend that I always used to say, like, hands on, minds on kind of thing. And I think there's a lot to that. It's like when you're doing those class yeah. experiments, and you're looking at how did this turn out? And how does it fit? And why? Um, I think those are the things that tend to stick more than me explaining something from a PowerPoint slide and stuff like that. And so I think that's, 
that's kind of what I view myself as now is not necessarily a dispenser of information. It's a, it's a guide, yeah. you know what I mean? Forward as, as someone's learning and stuff like that. And that's probably been the biggest, biggest, you know, over 10, 12 years now that I've been teaching in some form, that's probably been the biggest change for me. So that's probably a, a core thing. That's a big part of my courses. Yeah. I love that because uh, you know, I obviously sage on a stage model doesn't really seem to work as well. Uh, right. you know, and we've been doing it for what, several hundred years at this right. point. Like and we're just think, starting to study it. Now. <laughs> right. Right. I think we need to kind of move on and, and find some other ways. Right. So like, I, I think that's super important to realize that, you know, active learning clearly is going to be a better choice. Uh, I know for me personally, I did not learn well from the sage on a stage model. I, you know, like I said, I was a rote memorizer. So I would just take notes on the PowerPoint. I'd read and highlight and write and read and highlight and write until I got it. Then I yep. take the test and then dump the, the, you know, knowledge and move on to the next stuff to, to memorize. Uh, so that didn't work that. for me yep. over the years. I've kind of seen and experienced people that were doing things like that, different things that were like, you know, shepherd and guiding and, and like, you know, helping be the facilitator as opposed to the, the dispenser of knowledge. And I look back in hindsight, a lot of my English classes were taught, you know, group, well, it was like 10 to 15 students per, per professor, you know, where I attended. And so it was like small group discussions. And that's really what moved the needle forward for us and had that like childlike wonderment and curiosity, right? Because I personally am now looking back and realize, oh yeah, we learn so much. And I see it in my kids that we learn better when we play, right? That's a good yep. way to learn is to experiment and try and play. And, you know, they say that, uh, you know, fail is just first attempt in learning, right? Mm -hmm. We need to be aware that we're probably going to fail a bunch and that's okay. Mm -hmm. That's part of learning. So I think realistically, you know, it's good to, to keep that curiosity and that lifelong learning spirit as we move forward to, to try to increase that knowledge and make it stick, you know? So if you kind of look back and you kind of look at some of maybe your mentors or people that you really enjoyed learning from, like what really makes a good teacher in, in your, you know, opinion? Yeah. I think, I think the, the one thing besides, you know, beyond technique and stuff like that is, is just enthusiasm, <laughs> right? You can cover up for so many. And I tell students this, it's like, you don't have to be imperfect all the time, right? You're going to yeah. try things and you're going to fail and it's not going to work out the first time, but it's important to fail with enthusiasm. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I try to embody that because it's like, you know, if you bring great energy to the room and you're excited to be there and they can see how creative you're trying to be and stuff like that, I think you'll get a lot of grace from students and stuff like that. And I think people will feed off of that energy. And, and the people I've worked with that I just like going to class, I like going to lab, I liked working with, it's because they brought a lot of great positivity and energy. So yeah. I think that's, that's a, a big one. Right. And then I've, I've always think that the people I've worked with and I try as much, and it's sometimes I have to go back and say, you know, that wasn't my best approach, but uh, I think being humble and approachable, right. And being humble by, I mean, you know, it's, it's hard for students to sometimes come to you with, if they're struggling and if they have questions and stuff like that, if they view you as this all knowing person, Right. And even if you don't think that about yourself, even though if you're a person that is like, listen, I'm still figuring things out, you know, we're going to work on this together. Sometimes just the way we talk and the way we carry ourselves with students, I think we get in that rut where students are like, this is kind of the very paternal thing, right? Like this is the authority. This is the person that knows all and stuff like that. And it's hard for them to approach us. Right. So sometimes I'll, I'll talk with students about, 
when I'm, when I'm discussing something I know is going to be challenging for them, right? I'll talk about how hard it was for me to learn this, right? And it's, it's a good reminder for me. One, it shows them that I, I'm, it was hard for me too at one point. And it's a good reminder for myself. There's kind of this idea of a curse of knowledge. It's like, once you learn something, it's hard to remember how hard it was to learn. Yeah. So I'm constantly trying to hold myself back because I want students to understand that what they're trying to learn and what they're trying to do is hard. And I struggled with it too, even though I may make it seem easy right now, it's because I've worked at it for yeah. 10 years. You know what I mean? And so if students can come to me and be like, I'm struggling, I'm, I'm not getting this concept. You know what I mean? I've tried these different things. And I, I just think that's a characteristic uh, that of, of a lot of great teachers that I've worked with is I always felt comfortable coming to them because I didn't feel like I worried about feeling silly or I worried about feeling incompetent or being viewed as incompetent. I viewed them as like, I had a lot of trust in them, right? Like they were, they had always kind of show, shared with me how hard it was to do what I was trying to do and that I was going to need support. So I try to model that too. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think a lot of times we almost forget how hard it was, you know, and and you have to keep that knowledge gap and realize that you are teaching first timers or people maybe who didn't come from a math science mm -hmm. background, right? Like myself, right? Like, you know, it, it's one of those things that um, you have to keep in mind, like you said, that because you've done the reps and you've got pattern recognition now, it's a whole lot easier for you because you've been doing it for 15 plus years or 10 years, whatever it may be, right? So we have to kind of keep that one foot rooted in the fact that this is the first time a lot of these students are learning this stuff or, or coming across a lot of this. So that's a that's a great tip, I think, and a great attribute to have for, you know, a lot of professors moving forward. If we kind of keep our eye on the prize in that, like, hey, look, we're trying to get you from point A to point B, and here's how we're going to do it. And by the time we get there, here's where I expect you to be and where I want you to transition to, you know, every semester when you start over again or whatever it may be, you still have that same trajectory, that same path. <laughs> yeah. To kind of ground you in the fact that, all right, we're starting all over again, you know, bringing this group yeah, yeah. from point A to point B. Now the next group from point A to point B, you know, and so that's kind of kept me in that, you know, reframing model of like, all right, it's a new group. They don't know anything again. We're starting over from scratch, you know? So, mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, just trying to keep up with yourself and with, you know, how you teach and what you teach and keeping all ideas open and keeping and sticking with what works and getting rid of things that don't, because like you said, I, I, I definitely fail with enthusiasm. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of using uh, examples in real life and in mm -hmm. things I've seen in practice uh, and realizing that, hey, you need to know the gold standard and the textbook and the foundational stuff, but then realize that most of your patients aren't going to line up like that mm -hmm. because, you know, life and, and comorbidities and all these things and everybody's an individual. So, like, you know, we have to give you the gold standard and the foundation, but then it becomes up to you to work on the critical thinking and the clinical thinking to recognize the why in, in certain differentiations and different, uh, you know, presentations. So. Um, yeah, I think that's, you know, some really good characteristics to kind of point out there for for teachers who are striving to be the best version of themselves. You know, you've written a new book here, right? And and it's called Learning That Lasts, right? Tell us a little bit about the theme of the book and like what really got you inspired to write this book? Yeah, yeah, that's, um, you know, it kind of started out more like from a practical origin, <laughs> Um 
we I was having a, a conversation with our, our dean a couple of years ago and, you know, I was working with a lot of students and, you know, a lot of PT students, they struggle right academically in their first couple semesters. And, you know, I was just kind of talking with them and I was like, you know, I, I feel like sometimes I, I work with students and they're still trying to figure out an approach that'll work for them. Right. Like breaking down something complex. Right. You know, if they're taking their first course that really is going to push them like anatomy and physiology, like how do you kind of break down something that is very content heavy, very conceptually challenging and how do you kind of digest it? And I was like, you know, would you ever allow me, give me a little leash to try to develop a study strategies course, right? That, you know, presented some different ways and approaches that were evidence-based. You know, I didn't want it to just be my tips and things that work for me. I wanted it to be grounded in evidence and stuff like that. And so he was um, very supportive of it. He said, you know, see what you can do, come up with some different ideas and stuff. And I had already been, been looking at a lot of this stuff for yeah. years, right? Even when I started probably 10, 12 years ago, um, and it was first when I started teaching, right? Because students would come to me and they would be struggling and I'd be like, well, I don't know. This is what I right. work. And I started to reach out and try to be like to some, you know, center for teaching excellence on campuses and stuff yeah. and be like, what, what kind of things do you provide to students that are struggling in different ways? And, you know, I got a lot of great tips and I started to read um, some of the basic science stuff about how we learn best and stuff. And I started to kind of organize different, uh, papers and different videos that I thought really explained things well. And I kind of started to organize it and I, but I still felt like I didn't have a structure to it, you know, but anyway, so couple, you know, 10 years later, I'm getting asked to put this course together and I'm like, all right, I have a lot of materials, but there's no structure to it. So I kind of built a structure and started our, our first time we kind of fully delivered the course was last year. Um, and the students were really susceptible to it. You know, we went through different learning, um, you know, uh, study strategies, learning skills, whatever you want to call them, went through things like note taking, um, went through things like how to read, right, active reading, yeah. things like that. And even time management, we went through some of those things. And students were really receptive to it. It was kind of fun. I presented some of the evidence, but then I would kind of, I'd spend a little bit of time there, but then I would kind of go through, okay, this is what the science of learning kind of tells us now, how can we put this into practice? So that's a big theme of the book is kind of like, okay, coming up with different strategies or talking about different strategies, kind of highlighting some of the evidence for why that, why, or to support it. Right. And then tips for how to like put it into practice. And a lot of it is things I picked up on along the way, working with students, right. Where they'll tell me, Hey, you know, you talked about that. You shared that video with me. It was awesome. And I tried this and I actually think it helped. And I'm like, great. And I just make a mental note of that. Yeah. So the, the book is just kind of a collection of those things. You know what I mean? Those little tips and pointers. And, and now for a quick shout out to our newest sponsor, Varela Financial. If you're a physical therapist and you have student loan debt, you got to talk to these guys. What makes them unique is that they view financial planning like running hurdles on a track. And for PTs, the first hurdle many of us run into is student loan debt. Varela Financial will help you get over that hurdle. They not only take the time to explain to you which plans you individually qualify for and how those plans work, but they also take the time to show you what your individual case looks like mapped out within each option. So if you're looking for help on your student loan debt or any area of personal finances, we recommend working with them. I use Varela Financial personally, and they were able to help me lower my student loan repayment from about $1,800 a month down to about $135 per month simply by finding the right repayment plan that best fit me, my family, and our life goals. 
You can check them out at varelafinancial.com. Link is in the show notes if you need it for reference and tell them the HET podcast crew sent you. And now back to the show. Yeah. Well, uh, as somebody who has been recently diagnosed with ADHD, I needed literally every single one of those things. And I had to come up with my own techniques and strategies for what worked for me, you know, because I didn't know back at, you know, when I was in grad school that I had it. But now in hindsight, it makes total sense. I'm like, oh, all right. Yeah. And, and literally, I had to come up with my own almost like survival strategies, which were literally time management skills and time yeah. blocking, right? Mm-hmm. Note taking, like appropriate note taking, like reading, how to actively read. Like I would just like yep. read and highlight and I'd look and the whole page would be highlighted by the time be I, highlighted, I was exactly. like, what in the heck just happened? You know? <laughs> so uh, yeah, I definitely could benefit from all of those, you know? Um but yeah, tell me a little bit about like some of your favorite like teaching techniques uh, that really make the learning last and make make those, you know, that tra- that transfer of knowledge really stick for the students. Yeah, you know, I I I very much lean into, you know, the so-called testing effect, right? Mm-hmm. We can we've always thought of testing as like a way to assess students, you know. But it's such a it promotes learning, right? Like taking tests, answering questions when you're retrieving things from memory and stuff like that. It's such a powerful facilitator of learning. And I kind of found that along the way, right? When I would take tests, it'd be like, I would learn what I didn't know when I was sitting in the exam. I felt like I would go back a couple days later and review my exam and be like, I know that, you know what I mean? Yep. So I try to lean into that, like, and because that's a very tangible thing I could do. Like, for every one of my courses, I usually say if I present something or have students do an in-class activity, I'll usually have a follow-up quiz because it's like, listen, we went through this, put your notes away, and I'll try to time it out. So build in some optimal spacing. So it's like we have class on Friday afternoon or whatever. The quiz will open on, on Saturday or Sunday or Monday or whatever it may be, and you'll have time to do it. And it's just meant for you to kind of pull some of these concepts forward from memory because there's some magic that happens from yeah. a neuroscience basis, right? That creates things, you know, that are, that are, helps, helps think concepts stick a little bit more. And I've gone away from like trying to be too rigid with like, hey, there's a point structure to this and stuff like that. It's like, all I ask is that you do it. Yeah. Grades are killing us, man. Grades are worthless. <laughs> exactly. The whole like, grading system has it. screwed up academia. A hundred percent. You know, and students look at me like sometimes when I'm like, you can take the quiz three times, right? You get a hundred on all these quizzes, right? It's not about the, the grade, right. right? It's the process of yep. pulling that stuff forward from memory. And, you know, so there's things like that that I talk about in the book for how you can make that work as a student. But I think those are kind of big things that I do as a as a as an instructor because I I think of all the evidence that's out there for different techniques and stuff like that, it's probably the most consistent that you know testing facilitates learning. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so that's one thing that I I really try to say. All right, I'm going to try different techniques and I'm going to try all these different things. But that's one thing that almost never leaves my classes. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, it makes total sense. I I. I feel very similar and uh, like I, I tell my students a lot of times I really don't care about the grade that you make like no. I want to know did you leave my class with more knowledge than when you came in mm-hmm. did you learn something or take away something from my class that's what I care about because again at the end of the day you're going to need this body of knowledge that you learn to then apply to your NPTE exam and then eventually to real life so like the grade is like it doesn't really matter to me as much, but 
we have to have some way to, yeah. you know, assess and, and show that the knowledge has been, you know, kind of gotten from this, you know, the students and, and, and transferred to the students. And I think a lot of what we're seeing is now a movement toward competency-based education, yes. which yeah. I feel like is good. Healthcare, a lot of the healthcare fields have been doing that and we're a little bit behind the times in that, but it seems like we're moving that way anyway. So I think that'll be good. I think that'll be a little bit better. It won't be as rigid on the grades. It'll be like, hey, are you competent enough to, you know, perform the things you need to and then move on to the next level, you know? So I'm I'm excited to see where that takes us in the future. Me um, too. And I, I really did try to, in the book, I tried to highlight what you kind of just said there that, you know, as a healthcare provider, you know, it's true of every profession or whatever your major is and stuff like that. But I think it's particularly true in healthcare that it's like, you're not just learning to pass the exam, right? Yeah. Your, your tests are going to come after you're done with your formal education, yeah. right? With every patient interaction, every, you know what I mean? And it's like, once you get into that mentality, you'll be like, okay, okay, I've got to do well enough academically to, to stay in good standing and keep moving forward. But I've got to take some strategies that are going to help some me retain some of these core concepts. So that's where I tried to highlight in the book is, is it's not trying to do, they're not hacks, they're not ways to get around an exam or something like that. It's trying to, to leverage the science of learning for things that are going to create meaningful learning. You know yeah. what I mean? Usable knowledge, that kind of thing. So, yeah. um, and I hope that came through in the book because I, I kind of agree with that too. It's like, it only matters if you can take it and use it moving forward. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? The rest of it, it's like, and we've all been there, right? We've, we've got a lot of education over the years and there's so much stuff that's just fallen to the wayside. Sometimes I'll hear students talking about courses that I'm, you know, not teaching, you know, just in breaks and stuff. And I'll be like, I hear a term and I'll be like, I knew what that was at one point, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's gone. You know what I mean? And, yeah. uh, you know, it's one of those things that I think it's a good mentality that sometimes takes students, I think, a while to get into, right? Because they've yeah. been, you know, a little bit coached up in yeah, the undergrad conditioned. level, conditioned a little yeah. bit. And I think it takes a while to undo that a little yeah. bit. Yeah. Like I said, man, we need to, uh, we need to go way back and, and really take a long, hard look at our current academic system and how we can fix it, and make it better. But, uh, cause it, you know, it, it shouldn't have to be on, you know, higher education or graduate level school to undo all of that. You know, we really well, need to start from the, the ground floor and work our way back up and build the infrastructure again. But, uh, luckily I, I, you know, it's above my pay grade and there's bigger, <laughs> better uh, minds out there doing wonderful work to, to try to figure that out. So right, in the meantime, right. uh, you know, we have this podcast here to kind of give our little introspective, uh, takes on things and really kind of, you know, ask the ex experts what they think is broken and how they, they're going to fix it, you know? So, um, and it's you know. funny, I have, I have two little ones. My, my daughter is in like first grade and, and it's so fun, you know, she's learning to read now and stuff like that and, and taking home, you know, she'll bring home her books and stuff like that. And she's so excited about learning and she tries, right? She'll, she's not afraid to fail. She'll keep trying. And I think part of the, my wife and I encourage that, but I'm like, when does that stop? You know what I mean? And, yeah. and how do we make it not stop where they still are curious and they still love it for the sake of learning, not for getting a grade and stuff like that, or not getting a star on her, on her, on her, uh, on her paper. You know what I mean? At this point, she just, she just wants to know things. Right. And I'm like, how do I keep that going? So that's for another day. Right. <laughs> right. It's interesting. You know, as you see your kids grow up, you're like, Oh, how do I keep that alive? You yeah, know? for sure. 
Well, Gus, thank you so much for taking the time to to come on and and kind of share your knowledge on teaching and learning and and you know the new book and stuff. What we ask all of our guests this one final question, and that question is: If you could change one aspect of higher education, whether it be DPT or otherwise, what aspect would you change, and how would you change it? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. Um, one of the things, and I've and I've been at a few different places, and I know you know different universities encourage different things. They have different missions and stuff like that. One thing that I think would be a good change is to really look at incentives, right? Because right now I think, and I love research, right? I am all for research. I think that's a, that's a critical thing that a lot of universities do, but I think in, in some areas, the incentives for great teaching have gotten minimized too much. Mm. You know what I mean? Like it's for, at a lot of places, uh, one a friend of mine um, who was kind of a mentor and they meant to say that they said this and it was a great tip, but they kind of gave me the advice about not focusing on my teaching too much. And, and I ignored it. I, I've taken a lot of their other advice, but I've yeah. ignored it. But they said, you know what? Um, when it comes to teaching, good is good and great is good. What they meant is that it's like there's not a lot of incentive at a lot of places yeah. to really out, be outstanding as a teacher. Just be good enough and make your scholarship. Yeah. Right. Your research is really what is going to drive, you know, your, your standing at the university. And I always looked at that and I'm like, students think differently, I think, oh, a yeah. lot of time. Right. Because they're like they're here for the instruction they're, They I, they love to be, a, I think, a part of a campus that has a lot of high end research activity going on and stuff yeah, like that. But... but in their day to day, they want great teachers. Yeah. And so sometimes I think that the university structures, I think the incentives are off a yeah. little bit. You know what I mean? Um, so that would probably be the main thing is like making a good home for really great teachers. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, you've got, you know, course reviews, right? Like at the end of a semester, your students evaluate you, right? And and like a lot of the students don't even realize that only a percentage of your day is spent and focused is on teaching, that. right? Mm-hmm. So like they think everything revolves around their course that you're teaching and that's that's it. You're just all in on that. And it's like, well, okay, but I've also got a huge group of students that I mentor and that I, you know, am an advisor for. Um, I sit on several boards and and chairs and committees, right? Um, oh, and then I'm also doing research, right? So like, it, I don't know that they come in knowing that that your professors are, you know, broken up into several yeah. different categories that they're working on all the time, you know? And so, yeah, I think getting great course reviews and being a really good teacher, if that's like the pillar you're going to focus on, should be incentivized in some way, shape or form, you know? Um, because yeah, I mean, you know, fortunately and unfortunately a little bit like our university doesn't put a huge focus on research. It's it kind of expected. You need it for, we don't have tenure, but we have a, um, promotion, a promotion track. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I think you have to per- perform X amount of, of research over the course of five years or so. Right. And so, yeah, you've got to get that done, right? But it's not necessarily the primary uh, focus for the university, uh, you know, and that that may change. I know they're putting a heavier emphasis on it now, but if we look at the the bigger picture here, like, you know, letting people lean into the the pillar of academia they're great at and they want to be great at should be incentivized no matter which one it is which it is right? exactly and and i think you know if if we really look at you know how to become the best version of yourself in you know whatever pillar that may be 
you need support, you know, from your, your university. Right. And so obviously like, you know, if you have tenure track, if you have, uh, you know, R1 universities that are pushing for more and more and more research, well, yeah, that's, a, that's super important, right? So then maybe you go to that university if research is your thing. But if we look at it, right, CAPTI is, is you know, giving us this arbitrary number that 50% of faculty have to be terminal degrees, right? Yeah. When, when, like we talked about earlier, like I've seen PhDs that are not great teachers and I've seen DPTs that are great teachers. So, you know, how, how is that, you know, necessarily a, a standard that we need to follow when, you know, I would just really rather have great teachers in there educating, you know? Um, I, so I, I get it. You know, it's, it's a juggling act. It's a balance act, but I don't know. You know, I had a, I had a mentor one time, he was kind of a supervisor and he kind of talked to me and he was like, you know, this is how a kind of approach, you know, like we were doing kind of a, you know, a standard, you know, evaluation kind of where you're standing, where's your scholarship, where's your teaching, what you're, what are you doing for service? You know, his approach was like, we talked about it. We filled out the form. We did that, but then he kind of had went off, off, off the script a little bit and he was like what what's a great day for you i was like i don't know i mean i love when i come in and teach i love you know after that i would love to do some writing whether that's but be able to write different things right sometimes i write about the research i'm doing and try to get a paper out sometimes it's a side project like a book or something like that but i enjoy writing it's my my creative outlet i know everybody has different creative outlets and i try to you know, writing is kind of mine and I would do some writing because I feel like that can be productive and, and I would mentor students and stuff like that. And he's like, well, then we've got to make sure that most of your days look like that. And it was a really like inspiring thing because it yeah. wasn't like you're doing 60% this, 20% this, 20% this or whatever. It was like, all right, you're meeting the standards. Now let's make sure we tailor your job to what you are good at and what you love doing. And if I'm ever in a leadership position in academia, I mean, that's probably going to be my approach. You know what I mean? Is yeah. that conversation because I left that meeting feeling really good about where I was. You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, do more of what makes you happy. Right. I mean, that's mm -hmm. I, I, I think, you know, if we kind of look back at the whole discussion we just had. Right. Like if your goal is to get really good at something and become an expert and authority on this, your you, your journey is toward mastery. Right. Mm -hmm. And it, it doesn't ever end. You don't like just no. get to a point and finish, right? Like you're probably not going to become the Michael Jordan of teaching or of research or whatever, right? You might. And if you do great kudos to you, but it's the journey along the way to trying to become the best version of that thing that you can. And that mastery, that journey of mastery really leads to happiness. I think, I mean, that's, you know, that's something that that I've been really crafting, you know, a message around over the last couple of years. And it'll probably be my next book is just, you know, how expertise and authority can really, you know, set us free in a lot of ways, you know, because mm -hmm. you found your thing, man. You're just mm -hmm. you're leaning into it now and you're you're happy that you're doing it. And every step along the journey just makes you happy and makes you, you know, you feel fulfilled, you know? Yeah. And it's like those, we, and we kind of talked about this before too, is like what gets you excited in the yeah. morning? Because it's like, you're going to be good and you're going to stick to things that you love and you're passionate about and you're excited about, you know, like external reward systems to some extent, like oh, I've got to get tenure or I've got to do this right. or I've got to do that. You know, they're, they're kind of the, they'll motivate you for a little bit, but, yep. but it's like, what is that thing that's going to keep you driving? Intrinsically. 10 years? Yeah. Yes, exactly. It's like, um, 
you got to find that and you got to find a place that supports that. And you got to find people around you that are going to encourage you and support you and, and talk about you in positive ways when you're not in the room to get your, your name out there and stuff. And, and so you, you find that place and I think anybody can be successful. I think people take off when they're in those environments. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, and thousand that came, percent. Up in, came up in the book too. I talked about, and I try to talk about this in students. It's like, find those people that are going to be positive and keep you help you move forward. And a lot of times they're your classmates, sometimes not, you know what I mean? Yeah. But it's like, don't feel like you have to do all this alone because we've all had coaches, we've had mentors, we've had friends, we've had neighbors, whatever it may yeah. be. But it's sometimes it's just a little, you know, the little thing, like the little nice comment or the little, hey, note, how'd that turn out? That's awesome. You did that. You know what I mean? That can just open up like so many opportunities and, and open up so much motivation for you and stuff like that, that you got to yeah. find positive people in your life like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's that, uh, that Jim Rohn quote, right? You are the sum of the five people you most mm -hmm. surround yourself with. And I'm, I'm a firm believer in that. Like I luckily, I left my ego at the door a long time ago, right? I knew mm -hmm. going from English major to PT was going to be difficult. So I just said the hell with it. I'm going to ask for mm -hmm. all the help I can get from all the people Anybody who will help and support me, I'm on board. Like I'll, I'm coachable, you know, show me how to succeed in this because I know I can't do it by myself. Like I know it's a pretty big undertaking to make that kind of shift. So uh, ever since then, like I said, ego has been at the door and I've taken all sorts of help and, and, and learned from every experience I can from students to mentors, you know? Mm -hmm. So yep. it's, uh, it's been, it's been a, an enlightening journey for me. And I, I, I'm very fortunate. I'm blessed. It's been a great career thus far and look forward to the the rest of the journey, you know, good things to come for yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, Gus, uh, the name of the book is, is learning that lasts. Where can people find that book if they want to do a deeper dive on it and where can they find you on, on the internet or social media, if they want to reach out and have follow-up questions for you. Yeah, probably the easiest place to to get access to the book is is through Amazon. My last name Omenroder. Fortunately, it's it's one of <laughs> few, right? So you can uh, search that and and learning that last, and it and it's, it'll come up in Amazon and stuff like that. Um, as far as social media, um, I should be more active on social media. I'm on LinkedIn, um, and that's probably where I post when I do updates, when I publish a paper or publish a book or. Um, connect with people and stuff like that. So LinkedIn is probably the best best place to get me. I, I try to check it every day. Awesome. We'll, uh, we'll drop all those links in the show notes so everyone can awesome. find the book and you easily. Gus, thanks so much, man. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. Yeah, this has been so fun. Like I said to start, I mean, it's kind of an honor to be here because I've always enjoyed uh, listening and got some great insights from the podcast and stuff like that. So it's kind of, kind of fun to be on the other side of it this time. Awesome, man. We enjoyed it. All right. Thanks. Hello, everybody. Dr. F. Scott Feel here, and we don't do this nearly enough. Uh, I wanted to thank you as an audience for being here, for listening to the shows. Without you guys, we wouldn't have anybody to geek out with uh, over education and learning and teaching and educating. So thank you for, for being here, for being you know faithful listeners over the years. Uh, also, if possible, we'd love to ask a favor. We don't do this often, but if you could leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen to this podcast, we would greatly appreciate it. It helps boost our rankings and our algorithm and really just helps get this message out to more people out there in healthcare education who, who may need you know some of the episodes and the experts that we interview. So 
If you could, like I said, leave a rating and review, we would greatly appreciate it. And we will see you on the next show.